Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Hoorah! Thank you, Lord Jesus. Let's skip the sermon and go right to the offering after that lesson, huh? Shake out those wallets and dump out those purses. Write your check for everything in your account and then some. Liquidate the investment portfolio. Sell the house and bet the ranch. Get rid of that wealth, brothers and sisters, so you can be more easily saved. You heard the man. He said it twice in a span of only three verses. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth, who are rich like we Americans are, to enter the kingdom of God. Now unless you can find a very, very big needle or an extremely tiny camel, it's going to be an awfully tough road ahead for you. Imagine your reactions to this lesson are probably much like those of the apostles when they heard it. The text tells us that they were amazed the first time Jesus said it and exceedingly astonished the second time. Yet I don't even think those words properly convey and do justice to just how shocked they properly, probably were when they heard them. How does astounded strike you? flabbergasted, perhaps. Yes, the apostles' reactions to Jesus' statements, just like ours, can be quite strong, but for different reasons. Even though both their reactions and ours are based in part on the conditioning we receive from the culture around us, they have their roots in completely different viewpoints. The apostles got their attitudes from a society in which wealth was seen as an indication of God's favor. Those who were blessed materially and financially were viewed as having done something right, as having found the sweet spot in God's eye. God doled out the good life to some, and from others it was thought He withheld the blessings. Health and wealth meant that you were living right. Illness or disability or poverty indicated that there was some sort of black mark on your record with God. In our day, the interpretation has changed somewhat drastically, though. Now, to be sure, there are those TV preachers and the megachurch charlatans who tell millions that if they just trust God enough, if they just have enough faith and if they pray just so, their financial problems will be a thing of the past. And if they dig just a little bit deeper and give just a little bit more, their disability or their sickness will go away as well. Yet these frauds ignore the basic fact that our sinful nature does continue to cling to us as it does to all people. And that the forces of evil and the devil that God keeps in check still do roam the earth, occasionally and regularly making victims of us all. Yet most of our society sees it differently. Those who are wealthy are seen as having gotten there either through the application of just the right combination of talent, initiative, and opportunity, or just plain dumb luck. And even many Christians see it that way. They're willing to pray to the Lord, give us this day our daily bread on Sunday morning, oh sure. But they set aside that the rest of the week so they can claw and scratch and bite their way to stay ahead of the competition. 
And just where does it get us in the end? It brings us greater worldly comfort and security, that's true. Perhaps some prestige and a level of comfort that the rest of the world can hardly even imagine, it's true. But a focus on getting ahead and staying ahead really just distances us from both God and our neighbor. It moves us away from God because it requires all of those little compromises in our priorities, and we forget our dependence upon Him for all that we are and for all that we receive. And it distances us from our neighbor, too, because we seek to gain advantage and to grow in respect at the expense of others. Now, Jesus was not speaking against being successful in our earthly endeavors. Our vocations in the family, in the community, in the workplace, and in the church, they are gifts that are provided by God. They are entrusted to us to be done with diligence, with determination, and with dedication to the best of our abilities. Instead, he is warning his listeners against an excessive focus on earthly things. We are not to succeed in our own eyes or in the world's assessment, but in his. We are not to achieve for our purposes, but for his glory. We are not to devote ourselves to passing acclaim or rewards, but to the eternal. Now, anything can be done too much or too well if it leads to the exclusion or the detriment of our relationship with God, or if it's harmful to our neighbor in sins of either commission or omission. Likewise, doing certain tasks either too poorly or too little can also be damaging. Look back on your week just past. Think of all of those things you did that you thought were productive, but which seemed primarily focused on yourself and on your goals and on your priorities. Did you even give it a passing thought as to how it fulfilled your vocations in the eyes of God? Or how it brought help or harm to others? Similarly, count all of the times that you frittered away an hour or perhaps even an entire day on frivolous, even meaningless activities. It's not that Christians ought to be dour or sad or even miserable, having no fun in their lives. Actually, the exact opposite is true. God wants our lives to be filled with joy and with hope. He greatly desires that we have rich, even extravagant lives but lives in which the richness and the extravagance come from being the men and women and children that He created us to be. Not peoples whose sense of success and achievement and wealth meet the world's standards. Now, if you're anything like me, and I know you are because you're a baptized saint and sinner too, you might pause every once in a while and look back on your day or your week or even your month just past. In your more reflective moments, you might even take that time horizon back an entire year or a whole decade or maybe even your entire lifetime. And then you kick yourself just a little bit, thinking about all the poor decisions that you made, all of your missed opportunities, both material and spiritual. Now if you do, and I can't imagine there's anyone who wouldn't if they're really being honest, then repent. 
Repent of your mistakes and your squandering of time and resources. Repent of your broken relationships with God and with others. Repent of your jealousy and your selfishness. But most of all, repent of any doubt you still carry about God being able to take you just as you are, broken in spirit, tired in body, and anxious in mind, and being able to move you once again. He can and He does bring you back onto His path. He moves you in His direction. And you are always carried by His rich, rich, extravagantly rich grace and love. Repent of it all and be restored. And take comfort. Jesus does not want you to starve. He doesn't want you to be homeless. He doesn't want you to be without clothing or without medicine or without family or friends or any of the other blessings of this life. Yet He has ordained that we each use our abilities and our energy and the time that we have been given to exercise our vocation in the care and the service of not only ourselves, but our neighbor as well. But He does not want you to become rich if becoming rich means it's a barrier or an obstacle to your loving, trusting, and fearing Him above all things. He does not want you to be rich if hoarding what you've been given through the generosity of His granting abilities and health and effort leave your neighbor wanting. But you know, it's not just being rich in money and physical things that can be an obstacle, believe it or not. It is also possible that you can be so rich in spirit that you're shut out of the kingdom of God too. Now, how is that possible, you ask? Well, if your righteousness is self-generated, if you think you've achieved a right spirit and therefore forgiveness and salvation due to your own efforts, then your spirit may be rich and full according to your own measuring cup, but it is empty according to God's. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus preached on the mountain, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's in knowing full well that your cup is empty, that your spiritual account is deeply overdrawn, and you've got nothing to bring to the negotiating table that brings true repentance and a rich outpouring of everything that God has for you. You may recall last week that the rich young man walked away from Jesus just before this episode. He wasn't ready for that. He was still clinging to the illusion that his power and his wealth and the health and youth he had at his disposal were more important than what Jesus was offering him. He couldn't let it go even in exchange for something of priceless value. And then there's Peter. Even Peter, the dear and close friend and follower of Jesus, he couldn't let it go either, could he? Although his mouth and certainly his physical circumstances on the road with Jesus gave clear witness that he and the other apostles had truly left everything and followed Jesus, Peter still couldn't help but think that doing so was worth something toward his salvation toward his admission into the kingdom of God. But it wasn't. It wouldn't be. It couldn't be. It won't. Your good and your generous deeds, even those that are done in faith, will not save you. Even selling off or giving away everything you've got isn't enough. It's only by the faith that Jesus gave graciously to Peter and to you and to me that, he's, that you are saved. It is only through faith that trusts that He is the Son of God 
It is only through faith that trust that His perfect life and His sacrificial suffering and death as the Lamb of God atone for your sins that you are saved. Faith that sees the empty tomb instead of demanding to see the marks of the nails and yet still confesses, I believe. Our deeds, they flow merely from the faith and they give it voice as well as giving it hands and legs. The deeds give smiles and encouragement and welcome. Tears of shared burdens. Laughter of shared joys. And these things are yours right here in our parish family and beyond because your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Redeemer of all the world moves you to them. When Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life, he was talking about your life here in the church. Being a Christian will sometimes force you to choose between what God intends for you and what others, even in your close family, think you ought to do. It will sometimes even make you choose between what God wants you to do and what you think you ought to do. But even when your earthly relationships of blood and law become strained or broken, you have new relationships here. They are relationships of blood to be sure, but of Jesus' blood and not yours. Look around you here. See your brothers and your sisters and your mothers and your fathers and the children of God in Christ that He has given you a family of a hundredfold and more. They are relationships not of law, but of gospel. Relationships in the shared news that Jesus has brought you into the kingdom. He has brought you even where the poor are infinitely rich, where He who is the richest of all made Himself poor for your sake. With membership in this family come trials and persecutions, it's true. But these persecutions, just like all worldly things, all suffering and all things we set aside or we rededicate to the glory of God, they will pass away in the age to come. Yet eternal life is yours in the name of Jesus. Amen.